Uh, all right, so we're continuing our journey through the, the passion of Christ and the gospel of Luke, and this morning we find ourselves at um, what is a tremendous place, which is to discuss and look long at the resurrection. Think about it. Some of you, if you're theologically astute, may have bristled at one of the songs we sang. You may have bristled at the concept that, that, that Christ was a thief on the cross. On Friday, a thief? No, he was never a thief. Well, if he'd have died on that cross, yes, he would have been no more than a common thief. It was really in the resurrection that his kingliness became most clear. Because it was in the resurrection that he declared victory over sin and death. As Paul said, and as Josh alluded to in 1 Corinthians 15, if he didn't rise from the dead, we of all are the most to be pitied because we have nothing but a thief in a grave. Paul didn't say that, I added that just for effect. So, uh, so hear me well that the resurrection is um, of great importance. And unfortunately, I don't know that we talk about it near enough. We talk a lot about the cross and the forgiveness of sins, which is great, isn't it, for those of you who've sinned, small minority, Um, and for those of us who long for the wrath of God to be taken away, yes, the cross is very, very beautiful in that regard, but again, may I remind you, if there be no resurrection, none of that matters, that that was the completion of what was underway. It was a process that had to end in the resurrection unless we be the most pitied of all. I love the song that we sang where it says that the strong, the tempted, and the weak are one in the resurrected Jesus now. What a beautiful thing, because how many of you would arrogantly raise your hand as being strong? Most of us are tempted and weak, aren't we? But even the arrogant who think they are strong are joined with the tempted and the weak, and they are one in Christ now if they confess him to be their savior. Amen? And so it is a beautiful thing that no matter who we are, it matters most who Christ is and continues to be. Amen? And so um, as we look at this text this morning from Luke 24, verses 1 through 27, the main thing that I want you to get from what we're going to look at this morning is that Jesus Christ in his exaltation, and let me pause for just a second. Last couple of weeks, we've used the term humiliation. And we looked at question 27 from the Shorter Catechism. And the, think about it for a second. If there be no exaltation, what was the point of the humiliation? It was just suffering that was meaningless and does nothing to change anything for any of us. So it is very important that we know as much about the exaltation of Christ as we do about the humiliation of Christ lest we miss out on what is the fullness of the blessing of our salvation. So, Jesus Christ in his exaltation, in his resurrection, assures us of our justification and victory over sin and death and newness of eternal life. So let me read that again because all of that is important to us. Jesus Christ in his exaltation, in his resurrection, assures us of our justification and victory over sin and death in newness of eternal life. So the question that I would open with that is important to every single one of us, from young to old, so you need to listen if you don't, well, not if you don't hear anything else, but this, I think, is a fundamental question. For those of you who are starting to go to sleep, wake up for a second. I can see you. You think I just blindly kind of look about, but no, I'm taking notes but not judging. 
What, what tangible hope, now this is really important because that's an important aspect of the question. What tangible, what does tangible mean? You can touch it, it's real, it's living, it does not just dissipate. What tangible hope do you have for the future? Let me give you some options and you tell me if this is your tangible hope. Is your tangible hope in the range and choice of politicians that we currently have or have had in the last five to ten years? I don't care what side of the fence you're on or if you're on the fence. Is there a genuine, tangible hope that we can take the system through the eye of a needle? No, not without Christ and not without the resurrection. I have no hope whatsoever that someone who does not live in the risenness of Christ and walk in newness of life is ever going to come up with something that will allow for the kind of human flourishing that does not continue to be divided by and destroyed by partisanship. Is your hope in your ability to earn things? Is it money that is going to save you? Well, if you think so, and some of you may be on par with this guy named Rockefeller. I don't know. I don't know your bank accounts. But he, when asked, how much is enough? What do you think he said? Oh, just a little bit more. Which never came, by the way. A little bit more never comes. It's not tangible. It's not quantifiable. It wasn't to him. Is your hope in the children that you have? That they're perfectedness by your perfect parenting is going to ensure you a grand and glorious future. Well, I've got a 19-year-old and a 22-year-old, and I've got bad news for you. Now, that's not to say that I'm being totally negative about parenting. There's something very beautiful about it, isn't there? And there is some hope in it. But again, if there be not a resurrected Christ, what hope do you have for the perfection of your children given your parenting? The strong, the tempted, and the weak parents are one in Jesus now. And we could name on and on different things that we put our hope in, couldn't we? And what would we find? Stillborn. Nothing that is going to be tangible. Nothing that can last. All you have to do, if you don't believe me, is read Ecclesiastes. Read it as a treaty for the resurrection which I, don't, I haven't done before now. So if, if there is going to be any hope for the future, it must be real, it must be tangible. So this risenness of Christ, let me say this, and this will sound fairly provocative to you. If the risenness of Christ has no impact whatsoever on how you currently live, then it is equally as stillborn practically for you, as is all of the other options. Now, what did I just say? <laughs> A mouthful. Let me say it again. If the resurrected Christ, who is risen indeed, and I believe in wholeheartedly in the fullness and the tangibleness of who he is, I am not a dualist, for those of you who know what that is. I don't believe there's separation of spirit and body and that the body is bad and the material is bad. So the risen Human, divine Christ, two natures, one person, united in his resurrection as fully as it has ever been seen. If that reality, tangible as it is, does not change how you live on a regular basis, then it is as 
worthless to you as all of the other options. Not because he is ineffectual, but because your faith is stillborn. The Shorter Catechism, question 28, when it speaks of Christ's exaltation, says this, and this is really important. Wherein, and keeping it in the Old English, consisteth Christ's exaltation. Christ's exaltation consisteth, I probably should change that, in his rising again from the dead on the third day, in ascending up into heaven, and sitting at the right hand of God the Father, and coming to judge the world at the last day. It is only if Christ is truly exalted to his position as king that we have hope. It is not merely that we are to stand forever in the shadow, though it is glorious, of the cross. It is of grand importance that we move on to the newness of life purchased by the resurrection. So, as we come to this, if you remember from last week, those of you who were with us, we talked about the crucifixion and death of Christ, which is all about what Friday's about. And again, I've heard this said, Good Friday is not good if there be no resurrection. And so here we have, in the aftermath of the humiliation of the humanity of Christ in his crucifixion and death, we have the disciples scattered as it was foretold they would be. And they are scattered how? Are they running about looking for the risen Savior? Because that's what he said in Luke 9.22, after three days I will rise again. He told them what was going to happen. Is that what they're looking for? No. They are racked with fear and doubt. They are crushed under the weight of their tangible ideal being put to death. They have failed to remember his words, and not just his words, but the words of the prophets of old, as we read from Ezekiel this morning, that one day that there would be those who would rise from the grave. And remember, what did Ezekiel say would be the purpose of that? What would you then know by virtue of the resurrection? That God is Lord Almighty. And so they forgot all that, as do you and I, on a regular basis. Which is the beauty of how the gospel and his mercies are new to us when? Every third Sunday? No, every single solitary morning because of who we are and where we are and what we need. So here we see that though they are utterly ignorant of what is going on, it would seem, the Lord is going to reveal himself in his risen glory, which he is doing to us even now. So if you would turn to the text, Luke chapter 24, beginning in verse 1, we'll go through verse 12. This is essentially those who are seeking the living among the dead. It says, but on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared. So let me pause for just a second. First day of the week for them would have been Sunday. And they were, uh, this was a group of women that had been following him since Galilee. They're mentioned by name in Luke chapter 8. They'll get mentioned again. And so here they're coming to do what was Jewish custom, which is the preparation of a body essentially for the process of burial. So they've brought spices with them. It's Sunday, and they've come to do what they feel like is their duty for their dead redeemer. Verse 2. And they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. Now let me ask you, who had ordered the stone to be put in place? The Romans did because they wanted to ensure. And, and what kind of stone do you think it was? 
something manageable, something easy. No, they wanted to ensure that this insurrectionist, this false king of a false kingdom would not be stolen so that these fools wouldn't run around thinking that their Savior had risen as he said he would. And yet what they find is the stone is rolled away. Could not have been done by any human hand. Verse 3, but when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. Now let me ask you, according to Jewish law, can you just handle any old dead body? Now, whoever did this, if they stole the body, would have been committing a significant crime against the law. Verse 4, while they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. <laughs> well, that's interesting, dazzling apparel. And so who do you think these men are? Well, it could be that it's in accord with Deuteronomy 19.15, which says that something is true on the witness or on the testimony of two witnesses. It also could be an echo of the transfiguration where the same thing was in play. Could be. They're angelic figures either way because notice how they respond to this dazzling apparel. Verse 5, and as they, and as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why? Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but is risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise. He's quoting back to them Luke 9.22. Something that they should have had burned in their minds, but they're essentially being rebuked for not remembering, for forgetting that Christ said he would rise from the dead despite what he would suffer at the hands of sinful men. Listen to what John Calvin in the Institutes of Christian Religion says about this event. He says, For how could Jesus, by dying, have freed us from death if he had himself succumbed to death? How could he have acquired victory for us if he had failed in the struggle? Therefore, we divide the substance of our salvation between Christ's death and resurrection as follows. Through his death, sin was wiped out and death extinguished. Through his resurrection, righteousness was restored and life raised up. So that, thanks to his resurrection... His death manifested its power and efficacy in us. The power and the efficacy being manifested in us. Now, the, that begs the question, it, why do we not spend a, an, an equal or more time on the resurrection and discussing how then we should live in light of the resurrection. Is that not what the lion's share of the New Testament becomes essentially being about? Now that you've been formed into this resurrected people defined by a risen Savior, an ascended Savior, a Savior who is seated at the right hand of the Father, who has been accepted because of his person and work being perfect, who is coming again to deliver you, you who exist between the now and the not yet, why do we not spend more time considering, thinking, pondering, being challenged in our resurrectedness? 
Why do we spend so much time neurotically looking back to that which has been paid for, to that which has long been forgotten in the whole of heaven, far as the east is from the west? Why do we spend so much time staring at that which is gone instead of looking to that which is now the most real? It's a worthy question, isn't it? And just so you don't think I'm super spiritual, I'm guilty. I am guilty, maybe more guilty than you, of spending far too much time looking at my own former fallenness than I do looking at my current and future resurrectedness. One of the things that has had a supreme impact on me is is just how I even think about time. And at the moment that I became a believer, essentially the hands of the clock, for all intents and purposes, and for you too who have become believers, it stopped. And eternity began in a way that I had never understood or known before. Now here's the beauty of that. I am no longer racing the clock. I am no longer held to the tyranny of the hands of the clock and time. I am now set free to redeem the time to use it in newness and resurrectedness of life to actually see things change for the good. I am now an ambassador of reconciliation who is no longer dictated by sin and death. Now, does that mean I'm perfect, Susan? (laughs) She can tell you. The answer is no. Not in this, but before the throne of God, actually I am in the righteousness of Christ and the risenness of Christ because I am a sinner no more before the throne. Amen? And that is a very freeing concept if you think about it because how much of our existence is spent running from pain and suffering, running from the past, running from even the present because we have no tangible hope for the future and we're groping in darkness as if we are blind. And yet you've been given the biggest eyes of all to see in the resurrection, the biggest heart to feel, the biggest ears to hear all that is good, and, oddly, the biggest mouth to witness. And so, these two men have given witness to the truth of Luke 9.22 and have rebuked the women who have come from Galilee, and it goes on to say, verse 8, and they remembered. So as soon as they heard this rebuke, it was actually a sweetness to their ears. They remembered the words of Christ. And notice what they did. They sat down and gave up. Right? That's the wrong translation, isn't it? No, it says, and returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. They went running and gave testimony to what was unfolding and what they had just seen, which was an empty tomb. They were so excited. They just wanted them to hear, and they felt like these guys who had been with Jesus needed to hear it first. Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary, the mother of James, and the other women with whom who told these things to the apostles. But these words seemed to them an idle tale, and they did not believe them. But Peter rose and ran to the tomb, stooping, and looked in. He saw the linen clothes by themselves, and he went home marveling at what had happened. Now, why do you think, and Luke takes some interesting takes on this, why do you think that the risenness of Christ was revealed to women first in this culture? What was the role of a woman in this culture? 
Was she lauded? Was there equal rights? Was there women's suffrage? What, what, what was going on here? No, they were disregarded. That's why the disciples, when they heard this, even though they had been with these women, they'd seen and heard all that these women had heard and seen, they didn't believe them. They thought it just to be an idle tale. Peter ran to confirm. I don't know if it was because he had belief or he was just trying to confirm it an idle tale. We don't know for sure. But here we see the risenness of Christ first ministering to one of the more marginalized groups in our society, in their society. And that has implications for us as we consider what we do with our resurrection lives. It has significant implications for us as we consider to whom we should go with this message. So, I have a question for you. Are you seeking the living among the dead? goes back to the question that we talked about earlier. Are you sifting through that which has already been put away, trying to find some strand of life that cannot be found in the past, that cannot be found in going over again and again and again the mistakes that you have made that have led to death of some kind? It will do you no good to try to go over those things without the applied person and work of Christ and his resurrectedness. It will do you no good to live in the debt and the death of the past. And there may be many of you here this morning that need to consider that deeply because the past is dictating your present when only the resurrection should do so. Let's go back to the text. Verses 13 through 24. Now he's going to come upon the disciples who are traveling to Emmaus and who are lamenting the death of their Redeemer. Verse 13, that very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles or two hours journey from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all the things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. Now, I find that very interesting that they weren't able yet to recognize the risen Lord. And it's not just that they weren't able to, they were kept from it. So in the sovereignty of God, they were not yet ready to see. There was something that obviously God wanted them to confess that would reveal something deep within their heart that needed to be dealt with. And it goes on. And he said to them, what is this conversation that you're holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still. So you got to understand, they're kind of walking along, and Jesus just kind of shows up to join the, join the journey. And he says, what is this that you're talking about? And it's such a provocative question in their minds that they stop. And they turn and they look at him. And they say this. And it goes on to say, then one of them, I'm sorry, what is this conversation? And they stood looking sad. Then one of them named Cleopas which, let me just pause for a second. Cleopas shows up in a couple of other places, potentially, in the New Testament. And historians believe him to potentially have been Jesus' uncle. Now, we don't know that for 100%, but it's possible. Um, that's just fact, trivia fact for you if you ever have that question come up. Cleopas answered him, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? And he said to them, what things? 
And they said to him, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things have happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. So what was it that Jesus was trying to get them to confess that needed to be transformed? Well, they thought their Redeemer had been slaughtered. And they thought that it was over. They thought that the sword of Rome would now purge the kingdom of all of them, which was a fair estimation if their Redeemer had in fact been slaughtered, that they would by virtue be next. By associating with him, it could cost them their lives. I don't know how many of you have kept up with the news at all, but I'm reminded of those who claim Christ in Kenya, who were just recently killed. Last I heard, the death toll was about 148 or so. Most of them were killed in their sleep. They were targeted because they were Christians. So for them, they understood the radicalness of what was unfolding. They understood that it was going to be costly, but what they didn't understand was the life that they now had and the one who stood before them. And so here they get it wrong. They assume that Christ has in fact been killed. And so Christ is going to reveal to them their lack of knowledge. Listen at what Russ Ramsey, and, and I don't know if any of you might be familiar with Russ. Russ is actually a contemporary pastor in Nashville, who wrote a book um, uh, called Behold the Lamb, which was associated with Andrew Peterson's Behold the Lamb of God, and also wrote uh, a book for Easter called Behold the King of Glory. I would commend both of them to you as devotionals, great for family devotionals. Um, obviously, you'll have to use them next year. <laughs> but he says this, Cleopas presumed God's faithfulness was best seen in his ability to shield people from difficulty. How many of you would like it if you could come up with a means or an institution, or an organization, or an ideology, or a philosophy that would shield you from difficulty. Well, I know you do, because we all do it, right? This was a profound error common to most believers of his day and ever since. Glory preceded by suffering was God's pattern throughout all of Scripture. One way the world would recognize the true Messiah would be the way he would fit this pattern and not to defy it. This was one of the ways in which God tried to make it very, very clear that you will know who the Messiah is by the way in which he serves as the suffering servant. Did you think that they didn't understand Isaiah 53? Did you think they didn't know it backwards and forwards better than even you and I? or Isaiah 49, or Isaiah, any of the suffering servant songs in Isaiah. They would have known them and should have known to be looking for the one who would fulfill just as it had said. And yet, they were blind. 
And this brings us to something that is very important and that we must consider. It's big in our culture. What's your view of suffering? Now, that's a $90,000 question, isn't it? And if you think in the next two or three minutes that I'm going to give you exactly what you need to understand the totality of that, well, I'm going to fail you miserably. And it's a question that we have to wrestle with, and it's a question that I'm not convinced actually has words that will ever satisfy it, which is why we needed the incarnation, which is why we needed the resurrection, which is why we need the ongoing work of the Holy Spirit, which is why we need continual intercession from Christ who sits at the right hand of the Father which is why we need the hope of the return in which all things will be made new. See, if we could come up with a singular answer for suffering, so much so that someone who has lost a child would look at us and say, oh, that's great, yeah, I'm glad, that's awesome, yeah, I'm glad he's dead. How foolish are we that we would ever think that there would be a word or a series of words that would make someone be satisfied with the effects of sin and death. Clearly God was not. Clearly he could have written a word because he's God. But he, he, he didn't just write a word, did he? He sent the word. Incarnated in full. Crucified and risen. Ascended. Humiliated. Exalted. So what is your view of suffering And what is your view of glory? And the better question is, are either one of them even biblical? Now, that's something that you will have to meditate on and chew on. And what I do want you to know is I understand that that is a profound and significant question. It should be, right? How much money do you think we spend in this country every single year to avoid pain? It is in the billions of dollars. We outpace the next country by almost $20 billion. We are doing everything we can to avoid suffering. Now, I'm not Spartan in toto. I'm not saying you shouldn't take medication, so don't hear that. Don't go putting on Facebook somewhere that I'm against vaccines or something. I didn't say that. What I'm against is an unbiblical view of suffering that continues to keep you enslaved. That is what I'm against. And so if you need some help in this, that's what I'm here for. That's what the elders are here for. We would love to walk with you and, 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 and help you come to what is a biblical understanding of these things so that you can walk in newness of life. Because if it is suffering alone that defines you, that's not the resurrected life. If you don't understand that suffering in Christ now has a meaning that is glorious, you will not be able to rise in newness of life. You'll be like Cleopas, confused and wandering, sad, as if Christ had been crucified and died and never rose. Let's conclude with 25 through 27. Hear how Christ responds to them. And he said to them, and very gently, by the way, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that Christ should suffer and these things enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures 
the things concerning himself. He rebukes their ignorance, but it's discipline and not just rudeness. He's disciplining them for for not understanding what they should have known from the scriptures that they had been given. And he does the same to you and I. He is rebuking us for having a very, very low view of the resurrection and a poor understanding of suffering and glory. And praise God that he cares enough for us to rebuke us in that sometimes. Praise God that he takes the time sometimes to stop and speak firmly and loudly to us so that we would not continue to walk in blindness and foolishness and yet we could walk in newness of life. And so here, Christ in great kindness is showing them that the whole of the Old Testament was pointing forward to him. Not just his crucifixion, but his risenness. Listen to what the good doctor, D. Martin Lloyd-Jones, says in a book called The Assurance of Our Salvation. He says that when God raised his son from the dead, he was proclaiming to the whole world, he has done everything. He has fulfilled every demand. Here he is risen, therefore I am satisfied with him. It is only in light of the resurrection that I finally have an assurance of my sins forgiven. It is only in the light of the resurrection that I ultimately know that I stand in the presence of God, absolved from guilt and shame and every condemnation. See, if you don't understand the resurrection, then you're not going to understand your forgiveness, your justifiedness, your new righteousness in Christ alone, by faith alone, in God's grace alone. There is no way for you to understand those things by the cross alone. No way. And that is what D. Martin Lloyd-Jones is pointing to. That is what Calvin pointed to earlier. So the thing that I want to ask you and that I really, really want you to meditate on is how does the resurrection, the fact of the resurrection, the reality of the resurrection, the tangibleness of the resurrection, how does it affect how you live? What is the ongoing impact of the Savior who is risen to never be crucified again? Listen to the warning from the author of Hebrews. If you are dissatisfied with this whole deal, and obviously this is a loose translation, then what it's going to require you to do is crucify Christ again to an open shame and try to do it again. Now you tell me, do you want to follow a man whose sacrifice and risenness is insufficient for what you and I have done? That it, it is all predicated on us doing the right thing at the right time, crucifying Christ again to an open shame, trampling underfoot the very blood of grace that was offered to us waiting on another Savior to come. If this perfect God-man was insufficient, who shall come for you next? Where is your hope if not in the risen Savior? Are you walking in newness of resurrected life? Now, 
Let me be careful here. Am I talking about perfection? Am I? No. One of the beauties of walking in the resurrected life is you can mess it up huge and rise again for another day. Again, I have only my own parenting mistakes to evidence this. I have made it very clear to my daughter through some of my actions over my parenting that I am not the one she should look to as the greatest evidence of the risenness of Christ at times. And yet in one of her darkest hours, just recently this past week, she sent me a text and said, Daddy, would you send me one of your sermons? And it was the sermon on the cross and the death of Christ, and I'll be sure to send her this one too, not because I think it's great, because I think it completes the fullness of it. Now, you got to understand something. For my daughter to ask for one of my sermons, not that I am great, that is in the humility, the humiliation and exaltation of Christ alone that that even becomes possible given some of the things that I have done that would make her never want to hear a word from me again. So as we close out, I want to bring back up a quote that we used at the very beginning of the sermon series. And I have to confess, I misspelled his name the first time, but he's Australian, so he forgave me. His name is Michael Wilcock, not Wilcox, and uh, he is an Australian theologian, and he wrote the message of Luke. And he said this, and, and I just think this is such an important thing for us to remember. The most diabolical of all the schemes of Satan was not only countered at every point by a superior plan of God's devising, it was actually woven into that plan and made to serve its ends. See, at the cross, as we talked about last week, God took the most evil act of man in all of history and he turned it back in on itself to actually lay the axe to the root of the tree of evil. It was actually woven into that plan and made to serve its ends. And if that was what God could do with the master plot of hell, then there can be no evil, which he cannot in the end, listen to me. And this is resurrected truth, in the end that he cannot turn into blessing. So how, what do we do with all this? How do we apply this? So Jesus Christ in his exaltation, in his resurrection, number one, and this is so important, he declares victory over sin and death. For those of you who woke up today very aware of your own body's failing, isn't this good news? For those of you who woke up today very aware of your own moral inability to be great, isn't this good news? For those of you who got it wrong in parenting or thinking or loving your significant other or any of the things, isn't this good news indeed? Secondly, his exaltation in his resurrection transforms suffering into a means of glorification. Can you imagine trying to make sense of any of the suffering that you've endured or that you've seen in this world? Can you imagine trying to make sense of it without the resurrection? See, what you'd be led to if you followed it all the way down is something that Albert Camus said at the beginning of a book called The Myth of Sisyphus. He would say, 
Convince me now why I should not take this gun, put it to my head, and pull the trigger. What's the point in going on in any of this? Why suffer? And what's interesting is Camus wrote a book about a town in France, I think it's called La Chambon, did I get that right? Who, who risked the entirety of their lives to save a group of Jews. And it was such a profound act of grace and kindness that people have been writing about it. There were movies made about it. In fact, the name of the book, interestingly, that Camus wrote is called The Plague. And so here Camus is saying, as I look at the world, I look at suffering, I look at its meaninglessness, why in the world would you want to live in the middle of this mess? Well, because the resurrected Christ takes suffering and transforms it into something that has eternal and profound meaning. Thirdly, Jesus Christ and his exaltation in his resurrection assures us of our justification and ability to walk in newness of life even now. How many of you long to see this be true? How many of you long for this to be a tangible reality that has some impact on how you live daily so that you don't just get caught up in the ecclesiastical rise and fall of the sun and and weariness that is just existing without any purpose or meaning? I do. I long to see it change people's lives so that they can walk in newness of life. I lived for years with a failed understanding of assurance, and it just about destroyed me. And if I can help you not taste of that for one minute more than necessary, I will do it. But it's the resurrection. And it was, for 10 years, I, I stood so long staring into the past darkness that I was not at all enjoying the being in the light. And I know that some of you probably are there and you're struggling. And I want for the resurrection to call you forth. I love there's a passage um, in Isaiah where he says, speak to the darkness and call them forth from the darkness into the light. That's what the resurrection does for you and I. It speaks into the darkness of the between the now and the not yet in a fallen and broken world. And says to us, come forward and live eternally in the light that Christ has provided. My prayer for every one of you this morning, as you go forward from today, is that you would begin to consider the resurrection afresh. That it would begin to be something that does more than just make me wear a tie on Easter. Which I'm not going to do this again, by the way. Don't think I've gone more Presbyterian than I am. It's not about the clothes we wear. It's not about those things. It needs to be about something deeper and something more, doesn't it? I'm okay with a day kind of being that we get to wear bright clothes. I don't ever wear pink any other time. But I don't want it to just be that. I want it to be something that begins to permeate and infiltrate the whole of who we are. So as we close out this morning, if any of you are wrestling with any of this at all, we're, we're here. I, one of the things that I, I really dislike about us be tabernacling 
is that when we get done, we start tearing everything down. I think it encourages you all to get the heck on out of here. And I don't want you to feel that this morning. We're still going to have to tear down. But if you need something, if you need to pray with someone, if you need to wrestle with some of this and you don't want to go one step further without dealing with it, we are here for you. The elders will be in the back corner to pray with you, to love on you. Sam is available. Um, Any of the deacons will be willing to do that. But do not leave here today if there is something heavy upon your heart and you you want to take it before the throne of grace. We want to go there with you. We want to walk with you in that. If you have grand questions about the resurrection and you're going, this all sounds great, Cameron, but I have no earthly idea what it would look like on a daily basis. Well, one of the primary functions that is mine is to equip the saints. It is the function. And so if you want to grab lunch, coffee, dinner, I don't care what it is, um, call me, email me, let me know so that we we can talk about this because I want to see you equipped in this as do all the elders here at Christ Community Church. However we can serve you in this, we want you to receive what it is you need because it's not something that's just automatic now, is it? Because if it was, then we wouldn't need all this, but we do. So we want to serve you in that way. So as we conclude our time celebrating uniquely the resurrected risenness of Christ, I'm going to ask you again, not ask, but I'm going to say it again, He is risen. Let's pray.